last week talking about the cross as power. Uh, the cross is our, our only boast. And we're going to continue that series today talking about the, the cross as God's reconciliation with sinners. You know, a lot of the weeks past when we talked about the, the cross as a sacrifice, the cross in the courtroom and our justification, we were talking essentially about the way that the cross deals with the problem of our guilt, our guilt before God. But when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about the way that the cross deals with our estrangement from God, the, the distance that's between us and God, how in the cross God is bringing us back to himself. It really is, you know, it wouldn't be possible uh, without the cross as a sacrifice, without our justification, our guilt being forgiven. But all of those things lead up to the reunion of God with sinners. The way that Paul puts it elsewhere in Romans 5 is that, that when we were still God's enemies, he died in order to make us his friends. And so uh, we are going to look this morning at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Some of you might be familiar uh, with the figure of Desmond Tutu. Uh, Desmond Tutu was a uh, South African bishop and one of the leaders of the post-apartheid uh, recovery in South Africa. For decades and decades uh, in South Africa, under apartheid, the, uh, the white minority had ruled with an oppressive power over the black African majority in South Africa. It was a cruel and evil continuation of colonial rule in South Africa. And uh, when apartheid was overturned, Nelson Mandela uh, was voted in as president, became the leader of the country, and they were left as a country trying to figure out how do we move on after decades of oppression, of violence, of racism, right? How do, we, how do we heal? How do we move forward? And Desmond Tutu, as the, the bishop 
uh, of the Church of England at the time there, took a leadership role in helping them as a nation to, to move forward. And some of his wisdom in this was to say, we are never going to be able to punish our way out of where we've been. There have been too many crimes committed. There's been too much done. If we go out of our way to persecute every former ruling white police officer and judge and just everyday person who'd committed crimes, we would, we would have to imprison half the country. We'd be here all, we'd be locked in this cycle forever and ever. And so he tells the story uh, in his uh, autobiography of this. He wrote a book called No Future Without Forgiveness about what they did, which was to start really a, a revolutionary idea. They put together a courtroom that they called the Committee for Truth and Reconciliation. And unlike a normal courtroom, where people would be tried for their crimes and then sentenced, the goal was to unearth the truth, hence truth, and to arrive at some form of forgiveness and reconciliation. As a Christian, uh, Tutu believed that when sin was named, when it was confessed, when repentance was genuine, and when forgiveness could take hold, that real reconciliation actually was possible. There was something beyond just a cycle of vengeance locked in it forever. One of the stories that he tells in No Future Without Forgiveness is of a woman named Miss Collada and her daughter. Uh, Miss Collada's husband uh, was killed uh, under apartheid. He was a lawyer, an Af a black African lawyer, who worked uh, with the rural population. And he was constantly, in the midst of this work, subject to harassment, at times to torture. And eventually, he was, he was killed. Miss Collada found out of her husband's death by seeing a picture of his burning car in the newspaper one morning. And then here she is in this trial, being called to testify to talk about what happened. And she was, it was unknown to her who had killed her husband. And in the midst of this, they had to stop the trial several times uh, through her tears as she was unable to go on, as she was begging for some form of justice. After stopping the trial, they brought her daughter in to testify, who is now a young lady. And through her tears, this is what she said. She said, we have to find them. We have to find them because we want to forgive, but we don't know who to forgive. We have to know who killed them because we, we have to know who to forgive. We want to forgive, but we don't know who. And eventually, a group of policemen testified to the murder of Mr. Collada. They were forgiven uh, by the family. We have to find them because we want to forgive. These are the words of a woman whose imagination, whose heart, are shaped by the logic of the cross. Shaped by what we learn as Christians when we look to the cross. These words could have been on the lips of Jesus. But I have to find them in order that I can forgive them. Right? Jesus came in his flesh looking, looking for us, looking for sinners, looking for the very ones who in an act of cosmic rebellion pushed God out of our lives. He came seeking, seeking the lost to find us that he might forgive us. The Gospels are full of the stories of him finding us. Right, Finding some of us at tax collector booths, finding some of us out on the Sea of Galilee in our fishing boats going about our daily lives, finding some of us in wild and raucous parties, some of us in houses of ill repute. 
Right? He finds, he finds one man while he's hanging on the cross. He finds us uh, in our graves. We see him calling out even the dead to resurrection life. Jesus comes to find us, not to judge us, not to condemn us, but to forgive us and to reconcile us to God. He's finding us still. Some of us he's found on the streets. Some of us he's found in corner offices. Some of us he's found as our lives were going swimmingly according to the world's standards. Others of us when we're down and out. But Jesus finds us in order to reconcile us to God, in order to forgive us. In, these, in this woman's words, we see really the logic of what Paul is doing in this passage, which is to say that God on the cross through Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, we who've been reconciled to God should be a reconciling people. Right? Having been reconciled to God in the midst of our sin, we should then become people who seek out and who offer reconciling grace to the people around us. As the church, we should be marked by unity and reconciling love. That's what Paul is doing here. You know, it's a, it's a fairly shocking thing uh, in today's day and age to talk about human beings as in need of reconciliation with God. To name the fact that we actually are, by our own sin, estranged from God, that, that there's a gap, that there's a distance, a chasm between us and God. In a, in a, in a secular world like ours, that is a, it's a strange thing to attest to. I had a long conversation just last week uh, with a dear friend who uh, is a self-attested atheist. He would say he doesn't believe in a God. And one of the things that he said over and over in our conversation was basically, look, there's probably not a God but if there were a God, he's probably the kind of God who will be okay with me, right? If there's a God, surely he'll look at my life and see that I've tried my best to be a good person. I've tried to be kind. I've tried to be loving. I've tried to make the world a better place. And surely if there's a God, that's going to be the basis at which he looks at my life to determine where I, where I spend my eternity, right? Not whether or not I believe some kind of arcane books and strange facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right, and that sounds, that sounds fine. That sounds very, very good if, if we are not fundamentally estranged from God. If there's not a real distance that has to get dealt with. Right, if, if, we're, if that's not there, then a, then a theology that just says, you know what, if there's a God, I'm sure he's cool. Right, I'm sure he's cool with me. I'm sure he's cool with whatever decisions I make. But if there really is a problem, if there really is an estrangement, a cut-offness between us and God, which the scriptures tell us there is, and it's not because of God, it's not because God put the gap there, it's because we fired the first shot in a war against God. Our first parents did it when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. Every one of us does it in a thousand little ways in every day of our lives. Right, that there really is an estrangement between us and God that has to get covered. And at the cross, where Paul tells us, where Paul tells us that God was reconciling the world to himself, at the cross, God is taking on himself the closing of that gap. 
Christianity offers us a God who is so much more loving than the kind of vaguely tolerant God that our world offers, right? The, the God who just, ah, he's cool. He's laid back. He sweeps sin under the rug, right? A God like that might, might tolerate you. He might be permissive of you. He might kind of benignly ignore you. But Christianity offers you something very, very different. A God who doesn't just sweep your sin under the rug, but a God who, well, the way Paul says here, caused Jesus to be sin, caused the one who knew no sin to actually become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we could live with God in full communion. Right? That's love. Right? We know this in our human relationships, right? Nobody, if somebody tells you they're loving you, but just kind of benignly ignores you, says, yeah, no, I love you, good luck in life. I love you, best of luck with everything you have going on, do what you want, make your own choices. That's not real love. Real love always, sacrifice, always sacrifices. Real love always gives, it always pursues. And that's what the scriptures tell us God is doing on the cross in his reconciling love for us. You know, one of the questions uh, that we can think when we look at the cross, it's one that I think as, as we've gone through this series where we've been preaching on the cross over and over again, is why did Jesus die that way? Right, there's all kinds of things about our theology where we can understand why Jesus had to die. Right, why he, there, there was a penalty that had to be made for, paid for our sin. Right, but why couldn't Jesus just die of natural causes? Right, why couldn't he die a more humane death? Why did he have to die one of the most humiliating and painful deaths known to man? A death full not only of physical pain, but of emotional shame. Why did he have to endure the torture of the cross? And we see it here in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Right? It's like God took all of the evil and all of the darkness of this world and concentrated it there in the person of his beloved son in order that Jesus could soak up every last bit of it, that he could drink the cup of God's judgment all the way to the, to the end so that we could know only uh, the righteousness of God. I love the way that Paul puts this. He, taught, he uses, in the midst of this language about the cross, he also, if you notice, uses this cosmic language. Right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And really, Paul's language is more exclamatory than that. It's, it's like he's saying, if anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation. Something brand new has come. He says it again in verse 18. He gets at this idea. When he says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling the whole world to himself. You know, the scriptures tell us this story of the way that God created the world to be. That when God created the world, when he created Eden and Adam and Eve and the whole world, he made us so that heaven and earth would live in this seamless unity woven together, where Adam and Eve were never meant to know any fracture in their relationship with God, 
right? We have this picture of them walking and talking with God in the garden, this, this picture of perfect intimacy and friendship, that heaven and earth were made to be this fabric that was woven together and intimate, and that sin tore it apart, and that in Christ, God is working to bring it back together, right? The way that God designed the world is so that humanity was made to be this bridge between heaven and earth. Right, one of, the, one of the psalmists puts it this way. He says, God, you've made us a little lower than the angels. Right, human beings are made, we're not quite angelic. Right, we have bodies and they smell and, and we, we get old. We have, all, we, have, we have all this physicalness to us. We're not angelic beings. Even apart from the fall, we weren't made to be angels. We're this kind of bridge being, made in the image of God and yet very much of this world. So that when we fell, when we rebelled against God, the fabric was torn, right? The bridge had given out between this created world and the heavenly world. And that's why what Paul says that in Christ, when God's trying to reconcile humanity back to himself, he's not just after humanity, he's trying to bring back the whole world into new creation, into this world with a reconciled humanity at its head that would, that would flourish and flow together in goodness. Right, No more violence, no more uh, lust or oppression, no more war, no more polluting of the environment. That the whole, the whole world, the whole earth would begin to become a new creation, a reconciled world to God. He's reconciling the whole world to himself, making it back into the way that it should have been. But then there's a challenge and an, invita- and an invitation in that. So he's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors to Christ, for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. So God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. God's taking on the, the... the hard work of bringing the world back and of seeking reconciliation, right? How unlike us is God in that way, right? I don't know about you, but in my relationships, when someone wrongs me, when someone sins against me, when someone does wrong by me, right? I don't, what do I do? I sit back and I go, all right, well, they started this, right? They're the ones who, they know what they did. So I'm not gonna apologize. I'm not gonna seek them out first, if they're sorry, they can come to me. I'm going to sit here until they do. But God, the one who's been wrong, the one, the one against whom we've sinned, remember we said, we said that we started unilaterally. We fired the first shots in this war of rebellion against God. And yet God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. God's the one who, who reached out across the chasm to seek reconciliation, to reconcile us in Christ. And yet Paul then says, so you be reconciled. God's done the work of reconciliation. And yet it is possible for us to end up on the outside of this reconciling miracle of God. Right, that God took the pain on himself in the cross, but we, we can end up on the outside of it if we don't join ourselves to Christ by faith. Right, God does the reconciling work. 
All it takes for us in order to be reconciled to God is to repent and to believe. To acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge the ways that we've, we've strayed from God and sought life on our own terms. To acknowledge our rebellion and our wickedness. And to believe, to trust in Jesus, to trust in the cross. To trust in the one who knew no sin but who's become sin so that we could be right, right with God. Then we can get in on, in an instant, the new creation, this new creation life that Paul talks about here. We can be reconciled to God. So what does that mean for us uh, as a church, as a body of believers? What does it mean for us to be caught up in this reconciling work of God? Well, the first thing that, that it means is have you been reconciled to God? I think that's the question that, that, that we have to wrestle with. Right? Am I, am I content to live my life with this fundamental estrangement between me and God? Trusting in my own goodness and my own righteousness and my own prayer life and my own abilities to make myself reconciled to God? Are you working hard and trusting your own righteousness? Or by faith, are you trusting in the righteousness of Christ? If you've not yet done that, today would be a beautiful and wonderful day to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. And then Paul calls us to this, what he calls a ministry of reconciliation. The church has a ministry of reconciliation. Now, Paul, of course, had a unique ministry as an apostle. But he believes that the, the ministry of the entire church is to be a ministry of God's reconciling grace. What does that mean? Well, I think first, it means that we have a ministry of evangelism. The way that he puts it is that we are all ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ in a foreign world. Right? What does an ambassador do? If you, if you were the, you know, the ambassador of Norway here living in the U.S., your job, you are a, a legal representative of Norway in a foreign country, right? Your words and your actions as an ambassador speak for the government. You represent, you, you serve as a bridge between one country and another country. And Paul's saying that was his life and his ministry, and that's to be the ministry of the church, that we live as ambassadors of Jesus in our world, in our place, and in our time, urging people to be reconciled to God. You know, it's like uh, we, have, we have these records under Imperial Rome, which is the world that Paul was living in, the way, the, way the, the world the Corinthians were living in. Whereas the Roman army would move through a country. Remember, Rome had the most powerful army in the, in the known world at the time. When they'd move into Europe, or when they'd move into Africa with this mighty army, they'd send ambassadors out before them to say, make peace, right? Be reconciled. An army is coming, right? And if you don't make peace now, there will be violence, there will be judgment, there will be bloodshed. So while there's still time before the armies around your city, be reconciled to the emperor. Make peace, seek out a treaty. And that's somewhat of what the position that the church is in in this world, right? We do believe that one day Christ is coming, right? He's coming to make this world right. He's coming to judge evil and to judge wickedness and to set every broken way straight. And in the interim, in that gap, 
He sends us out into our neighborhoods, into our city, into our place of business to tell others that there really is an offer of reconciling grace. That God comes not, not with judgment, but with peace and to make peace with God now while there's time. It's why the church is about evangelism and mission, representing Christ. I think this has to be done not only with words, but with deeds, right? If you, know, if you think about your life and what it means to be an ambassador of Christ, it means that we should live our lives in a way that's consistent. The way that, like, let's ask it this way. Would anybody look at your life and listen to your speech and say, you know what, the God that they believe in, the God that he believes in or she believes in, must be a God of reconciling grace. He must believe in a God who's radically gracious and merciful because I see the way that she loves and the way that she serves and the way that she gives her life, the way that she forgives. Surely their, their faith must be one of, of grace and reconciliation and forgiveness. We represent uh, the grace and mercy of Christ through this ministry of proclamation, this ministry of ambassador, uh, as ambassadors of Christ. So we could say that our ministry of reconciliation has this vertical dimension to it, urging people to be reconciled to God. And it also has this profound horizontal dimension to it, that we seek reconciliation in the fractured relationships in the church and in the world. Right, that's really what, what Paul, that's what has occasioned Paul's writing to the Corinthians. That's what those first verses are all about that we read, where he's saying, we're, we're not writing to commend ourselves to you. Right? What had happened in Corinth is that the church had become fractured. There were some people in Corinth, I know Jonathan got into this some last week, right? There were some in Corinth who said, oh, no, no, we, we follow the apostle Paul, he's our guy. Others were saying, no, 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 we follow Apollos, he's our guy. Right? Already in the first century of the church, they were starting to have fractures. They were starting to have people that say, oh, no, no, no. We don't believe it that way. We believe it this way. We don't do it that way. We do it this way. We think you're wrong. We think we're right. And so Paul's writing to urge not only right, on the basis of the vertical reconciliation we have with God. He's saying be reconciled to one another in the church. The church, if we really do believe in a reconciling gospel and a reconciling God, shouldn't be fractured. We shouldn't be in a place of disunity and discord between ourselves. We should seek union and unity with one another, right? And we do that as a church. That's right. If, if, you've, if you've joined this church, you've taken a vow to pursue the purity and peace of the church, right? Which means you've taken a vow not to gossip about other people, not to slander them, not to backbite them, to talk to other people instead of about other people. You've taken vows to work through your differences, even theological differences, even missional differences, differences about the direction and vision of the church. You've taken vows to work through those things and to seek the purity and peace and flourishing of the church, not to be fractured, right? We do that when we seek partnership with other churches, right? The reality is that in, this, in, in America, in our day and age, the church is fractured, right? You've got different denominations and you've got uh, you, you can identify churches that are predominantly black churches, churches that are predominantly white churches, churches that are predominantly Korean churches, predominantly Hispanic churches. You've got churches that are fractured by not only theological differences, but ethnic differences. And so we should seek everywhere possible unity and cooperation between the churches, especially at a neighborhood level. 
right? We've been seeking to work that out here in our neighborhood, ways that we can participate and partner, present to our neighborhood that we are, we are one church representing one kingdom, one gospel. So should we, we should seek to do that. So in some places, like in Corinth, Paul's saying, be reconciled to one another, not divided, because the gospel is a message of reconciliation. Other places, like in Romans and to the Galatians, he's talking primarily about another division that had crept into the church, which is the division between uh, Jews and Gentiles, a division that was primarily culture, cultural and ethnic. Right? Don't be divided. Right? It would have been easy in Paul's day. It would have been very easy. for you know, Paul was a, he was a theologian, he was a pastor, but I think above all, Paul was a missionary. Most of the letters that Paul writes, he's writing to churches to help them figure out their life together as new churches. He's talking to churches he's planted. He's talking to churches about that he wants to go and strengthen. So he's this missionary theologian, missionary pastor. And as a missionary, it would have been very, very easy for Paul to say, you know what? Okay, if my goal is for as many people as possible to hear the message, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start Jewish churches and I'm going to start Gentile churches. I'm going to start some churches that are going to be very, very good at ministering in the synagogues and becoming a, a credible witness to the Jewish people of my day. And then I'm going to start another, other churches for Gentile believers, right? Gentiles, they think Jews are weird. Uh, they think that their food customs, they won't, eat, they won't eat pork. Uh, they, I mean, come on. They won't eat pork. They won't eat shellfish. They dress funny. They cut their hair funny. We're, going to, we're just going to start another church over here that's going, to be, that's going to reach effectively into Gentile communities. But that's not what Paul did. He said, no, no. Jews and Gentiles living together as different people under the banner of one reconciling God is not, it's not incidental to the message of the gospel. It's core to the message of the gospel. Right, that it's actually the unity of Jew and Gentile in the pagan world that would cause their neighbors to, go, to look at the church and go, wait, wait, wait. I know Jews, and I know Gentiles, and they don't like each other. They don't hang out with one another. They don't eat together. They don't do life together. And yet here they are giving sacrificially to one another, sharing their lives together, raising their families together, worshiping together, breaking bread together. And the pattern that Paul is lifting up over and over again in his letters is that the church, the reconciled body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together, is a testimony to the reconciling power of God in the gospel. That it's a testimony to what God is doing. All right, Christ Church in town, 2017. What does that mean for us? I've come to a conviction. I believe that there is nothing in our world, in a southern city like Jacksonville, in a nation like ours that's as divided politically and economically and culturally and racially as we are, that there is no more powerful witness to the reconciling grace of God than a church that's seeking reconciliation, a church that's seeking active unity, between white and black, rich and poor, I believe that that is, is not an incidental piece of the gospel, but is a core part of what it means to be the church in our place and in our time. I believe there's not a more strategic place that we could be trying to do it 
than right here. You know, one of the amazing things about uh, one of the amazing things about this neighborhood, about Lackawanna, is that it really is a bridge community between White Jacksonville and Black Jacksonville. Right? It's right. It, it is. It's it's borderland. It's right. It's right here, where you if you go a couple blocks that way, you see almost entirely white people. If you go a couple blocks that way, you see almost entirely black people. What if when you walked into this church on a Sunday morning, it was not immediately clear whether or not you had walked into a white church or a black church? But you walked into a church, but you walked into a church where it became clear that this was a third culture. This was, this was, a, this was another thing that's only possible by the reconciling grace of God. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're seeking. It's not because it's PC diversity stuff, right? You know, it's possible to have diversity without unity, right? Jacksonville is a fairly diverse city, right? Is Jacksonville a unified city? Is it a reconciled city, right? Some of you have sat through diversity task force at work. Did that lead to reconciliation and unity? No, because only the gospel only the gospel is powerful enough to reconcile, to bring the two together as one, to bring the fractured family of humanity together into one family. Only Jesus is powerful enough to do that. The theologian Leslie Newbegin, I won't read the whole quote, but he said this. He was a, a writer. He was a missionary in India, an English missionary, uh, who after a lifetime of missionary service came back to England and realized that the church in the West was now in a missionary setting. We are now missionaries in our world. And he, this is what he said. He said, I've come to believe that the only credible apologetic, the only credible way of interpreting and explaining the gospel in our world, in a secular world, is through a group of people at church that's committed to living it out, to believing it, to following it, to ingraining it in his very being. May God make us a church that is a testimony, that is an apologetic, a witness to the reconciling grace of God.